Do you want to become a better hockey player this summer with Paul Vincent Hockey? Since 1972, Paul Vincent, currently the head skills instructor of the Florida Panthers, has been developing NHL and college hockey players. Paul Vincent stands by his saying, there is always room for player development. Players such as Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Keith Yandel, Matt Grizzlick, Patrick Sharp, Adam Oates, and many more have trained with Coach Vincent and his staff and have outstanding results. Join Paul Vincent this summer at one of his four Massachusetts locations, Canton, Saugus, Middleton, and Falmouth on Cape Cod. Registration is now open for 2022 camps. To reserve your spot today, go to pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. That's pvhockey.com or call 978-807-4070. Paul Vincent is ready to get back to work this summer. Are you? Welcome to New England Hockey Journal's Rink-Wise Podcast, the podcast for serious hockey players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their hockey careers. And now, here is your host, New England Hockey Journal's Kirk Ludicky. Welcome to another edition of the New England Hockey Journal Rink-Wise Podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Ludicky. We've got a great show lined up for you today with Redline Report publisher and head scout, chief scout, Kyle Woodleaf. And we're going to talk to Kyle about scouting, his background as a Nashville Predators scout and what that team looked for and what he looks for and attributes in players that are important have kind of shaped his work over the years as the publisher of the Redline Report, which has been around for almost 30 years and has been an industry standard that NHL teams have used to help their own scouting process. And then uh, we'll close it out with some 2022 and 23 draft talk, talk about some specific players and some guys that are some good names, not only globally, but here in New England. So with that in mind, here's my conversation with Kyle Woodleaf. I'm in the studio. Kyle's on Zoom. He's based in Lake Placid. And we hope you enjoy this draft dedicated podcast episode. Welcome to Rinkwise. We're so glad to be joined today by Kyle Woodleaf, Chief Publisher and Head Scout, Redline Report. Kyle, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, Kirk. And, uh, you know, we're, we're out here after the holiday season now, and we're all hoping that hockey is going to continue on a somewhat regular basis this year. Yeah, certainly seems to be uh, kind of up in the air with this Omicron thing, but hopefully cooler heads will prevail and they can roll with the punches. Uh, before we get started and, and get too far into this, uh, Redline Report, what is it and, uh, you know, what, uh, what can people do to, to get access to it? Well, Redline Report is an independent scouting service uh, that we started. We're in our 29th season now. Um, it was started uh, as a service that NHL teams could use as a kind of a cross-checking service for their own uh, scouts, uh, their own team of scouts. Uh, sometimes when you're all in a group together uh, constantly, you get into a little bit of a group think. Um, so NHL teams started using it as a way to cross-check what they were seeing in their own internal meetings uh, and compare it against red lines rankings, see where, you know, maybe they needed to look at a, a player a little bit more, you know, delve a little deeper there. 
Um, and it, you know, grew from there into uh, all the CHL teams uh, using it throughout Canada. Uh, a lot of college, uh, U.S. colleges were using it, and all the major uh, player agents were using it. Um, you know, it's uh, it's basically a source of information, uh, independent information that's uh, that doesn't have a jaundiced eye towards anybody. Um, and it's, you know, it's evolved that way over the course of 29 seasons now to the point where all the NHL teams use, uh, as, as I said, all the major agents uh, want to know, you know, how their clients are being viewed. So, uh, you know, we just give in-depth scouting reports on, uh, you know, we, we rank 325 players by the end of the season. You know, we'll start out with our top 100 uh, prior to the season beginning in, in August. And, you know, we keep adding on and adding on as we see more action throughout the course of, uh, you know, the, the CHL schedule, all the European leagues, all the major international tournaments. And, you know, by the time you've gotten to the end of the season, you've built a, a database on, you know, over 300 players. Yeah. And I, I've been, I was a longtime subscriber and former staff member. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I you t- when I started out, I think it was Redline was the 29th team or the 30th team, you know, and then and, and, and still talk about that. The process, right? It was similar. The layout and everything is similar to way, the way an NHL team tends to do things typically. That's what we try to do. We try to, you know, I've been in NHL staff meetings where we were, you know, arguing back and forth about players. And, you know, sometimes it gets heated. Uh, people have, you know, very strong opinions uh, as scouts should. Uh, you don't want scouts who are going to be sitting on the fence about players. So, you know, when there's strong opinions involved and there's disagreements, um, you know, you talk about players in a very uh, open fashion that uh, the public <laughs> wouldn't necessarily think uh, happens behind closed doors, but it does. And our goal is always to talk about prospects in red line report, uh, just the way they're discussed in closed door um, scouting meetings by NHL clubs. So you were a, a scout with Nashville and uh, worked for David Poyle and uh, just very interested in, in what some of your recollections were and, and how that developed your, you know, your professionalism, your experiences and and has kind of guided you since then because you were you were scouting for them i believe when they were expansion team so expansion rules yeah expansion rules were different and all that but just how overall was that experience of being with the nashville predators and 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 being a part of of building that franchise from the ground up well it's you know it's quite something when you're in on the ground floor or something and the people in seattle are experiencing that now and uh, you know las vegas uh, the, the golden knights uh, they experienced that a few years ago uh, it's a blank canvas and, you know, you have to have a leader like a David Boyle who has a vision of what he wants in a franchise and, you know, brings in the proper people. So it was, uh, you know, we had a large staff and it's, it's amazing to me, you know, more than 20 years later, how many of those guys on, on that Nashville staff, that first Nashville staff are still around the NHL, um, you know, have been, Uh, scouts in the NHL for 20 years, some of them chief scouts. Um, So it's, uh, it was a pretty talented crew looking back on it. 
I just remember being in the various drafts with you and just all the people you know, right? And that's that just it goes without saying. And the more you're in the game and the more you're around the rinks, you just develop those those connections and those those relationships. And uh, relationships are, are, are everything. So you know, from from your perspective, as as you made the decision to do you know to dedicate yourself to redline and coming up on 25 years ago I, I believe it was 98 99 season if I'm not mistaken was your first official run in that in the commanders the captain's chair uh, and and really you 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 know Kyle let's be honest you you made redline what it is today I mean you change you know you you had the vision and, and redline is you know largely just with the with the style and, and what you brought um, you made it your own, but as you went into that, looking back, you know, what were some of the tools that you had learned in your in your experiences that set you up to be successful in doing this? Because really, that there wasn't any. Now there are all these various other folks out there trying to do it, and uh, you know, but you really kind of established the original model and, and the mold for it. So how how were you able to do that and, and pull it together? Well, I think it's just, um, you know, we, we were looking in Nashville at certain attributes uh, in players and some things just hold true over the course of time. I mean, back then, uh, I think it was kind of an unfortunate um, era of hockey in that teams were all looking for big, you know, six foot four inch monsters, uh, big physical beasts out there. And a lot of them were being drafted high in the draft, first round picks uh, who didn't really have much hockey sense and, 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 you know, didn't really understand how to play the game without the puck. And we were looking for different attributes. We were looking for guys who could skate, uh, guys who had hockey sense, which is one of the hardest things to measure. You can't really measure hockey sense like you can measure skating speed and you know with all the analytics that go on today you can measure just about anything but you know the two most difficult things to measure really are hockey sense and heart Uh, you know what is in the player's heart that's driving him uh, to make him a successful player at the highest levels Um, so those were the things that we were really looking for and uh, you know as I said not not measuring them um, subjectively um, so I, I think that's what I brought into Redline in terms of uh, trying to impart to all the scouts that I brought onto the staff. You've got to be able to skate. Uh, the skating is the number one key. Hockey sense is the number two key. You know, if that comes in a package where it's uh, a six foot two inch, two hundred pound winger who's physical and and you know pounds guys in the corners, great. But if it's a five ten, hundred and eighty five pounder who's willing to put his body on the line and, you know, get, take hits, give hits uh, to make plays. Well, don't downgrade the guy because he's only 5'10", 185 pounds. If he's a hell of a skater, uh, he doesn't mind throwing his body around, getting into the corners, mucking it up in traffic. You know, that's, that's what was missing in the game back then when I took over red line in, uh, in early 99 and, you know, as I said, I think, you know, we were making mistakes then because t- teams were just looking for bigger guys who could physically dominate. But, you know, they didn't really understand the game and how to play away from the puck. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that I was looking at, too, when I was trying to impart to scouts is unless you're a Wayne Gretzky, you know, if you're if you're a forward and you're playing 19, 20 minutes a game, 
unless you're a Gretzky or a Lemieux, you don't have the puck on your stick for more than 60, 80 seconds in the course of a game. So most of your playing is done without the puck on your stick. You've got to understand the game well enough to know what areas to get to, when to get there, anticipate what plays are going to be developing. So those are the sorts of things that I was looking at back then. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we were successful at in terms of we took a lot of heat early on from NHL teams because we would rank smaller players in the first round that we knew weren't going to be drafted in the first round, but we felt they were going to have good long NHL careers. I mean, you know, Danny Briere is, uh, is, a, is an early example of that, but there's so many of them. And we, we would take the heat and red line and we said, look, you know, we're not looking for exactly the same things you are. And I think eventually over the course of the last 20 years, it's come around to that. It's now a skating and skills game and, you know, great if you have size to go along with it, but there's an awful lot of five foot, 10 inch, 180 pound defensemen out there now. And, you know, when I first got into the sport in the scouting aspect of it, if you were a defenseman who was five, 10, 180 pounds, teams weren't even looking at you. So uh, I think that's one of the biggest things that's, that's changed over the years. Yeah, it's great insights. And I, you know, I, I, I saw it myself and just the, the proliferation of the, of the players that are able to now skate and handle pucks and that, you know, they have the ability because of the availability of the ice and the, and the, and the, the skills coaches out there. So you really do have to focus on the details and the habits. And, uh, I don't think it gets stressed enough. Um, you know, we all tend to, you know, we talk about players puck watching. Well, sometimes when you're scouting games, you, you player watch, you know, you, you fixate on the guy that's got the puck and what he's doing. And you really have to discipline yourself to, to look at him when he doesn't have the puck and look at what kind of routes he's taking, you know, what's he doing on the breakout, you know, all, all of these various aspects that will all lead to a scoring chance. Um, but it doesn't necessarily happen with a puck on a stick. Right. And, you know, as, as I said, if you're, if you don't have the puck on your stick at the moment, there's other things that you can do to impact the game. But if you're, you know, if you're just out there, occupying space and you're not impacting the game then you know whatever level you're playing at now it's not likely to get better as you move up the ladder um you know you have to have a sense of where the play is going to be where it's going uh you have to anticipate and that's where you know hockey sense comes in in all three zones of the rink i mean you have to understand your own defensive responsibilities you have to understand how to generate speed on the rush through the neutral zone. You have to understand, you know, how to gain the opposing blue line, um, you know, and then once you're in the offensive zone, you know, you have to be creative with the puck. You have to look for different passing angles and create different angles for yourself. Uh, you have to be able to get your own shot off. You have to be able to create offense for others. And if that's by going down into the corners and, you know, plying your trade in the scrums and coming out with loose pucks and uh, shaking pucks free with a, with a, an intense forecheck. You know, there's so many things that you can do to impact the game. And if you're just there taking up space, then, you know, it's, it's not going to work for you at a higher level. Right. Or cheating, you know, not really knowing where to be or just kind of, you know, taking it, you know, not playing, you know, one of the, one of the things I've heard people say is, you know, you've got to be above the puck, you know, in the, in the defensive zone and not, and not, 
you know, not be out of position, but not not leaking out of the zone too early. You know, there's a fine line between being in in position to support the puck and 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 respond. You know, if a teammate is able to to force a you know a turnover or at least a contested puck, being able to get possession because in hockey that's what it's all about possession, right? And and we've seen the teams turn and turn it into a possession game because they understand the importance of it. Yeah, and and you know little things like uh, even defensemen when they gain possession of the puck in their own end, if there's not an obvious breakout, it's on it's incumbent upon his partner to make himself an outlet. You've got to you know D to D passing is very important. Everybody's always looking to headman the puck and break out as quickly as possible. But you know if there's another team out there that's looking to you know clog up the middle um, and, and and not let you break out easily. So D to D passing and, and reversing the puck back around, it's very important. And the defenseman who doesn't have the puck has to make himself available as an outlet and has to get himself to an open space on the ice where you can you know, restart the whole engine again. Self-indulgent war story, but when I was working for you at Redline Report and we were together at the flood, 2012 flood mar, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite rec- recollections, and, and something that's really stayed with me is you don't really appreciate a team being able to break the puck out of its own end until you see a team that cannot do it, and then boy, is that a uh, that is a sobering and a and an emotional event when you're having to watch it, watch a team that cannot break the puck out. And I know you're you're laughing, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, it was painful. <laughs> and you don't want to be a goaltender behind five five defensemen who can't get out of their own way and can't get the puck out of their own zone. So Yeah, so 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 critical. So that it's great. So um great background, great insight for anyone that's listening that that, that is that is interested in scouting. And Kyle, I mean, we just scratched the surface, but Kyle really touched on some important points and, and really most people even even the, the typical fan that, that's familiar with hockey or maybe even played at lower levels can go to a game and identify those guys that can really skate and handle the puck because they, they pop, they jump out at you. But it's it's that, that the rest of that, it's the layers, it's the complexity, it's the, the attributes and the details and the habits of a player uh, that are really going to determine whether they have a chance, you know, chance to make it. Kyle, what do you think of the term crapshoot when they talk about applying, you know, the NHL draft is a crapshoot? Because while on one hand I believe it, it, it is difficult to project 17- and 18-year-olds to, to what they're going to be as, as professionals, on the other hand, I, I don't necessarily, you know, crapshoot is completely, you're leaving it to chance, right? You're throwing dice, and I think I think it's more of a, it's a risk reward and that, that teams can mitigate the amount of risk through informed decisions that they make. And you do that through the scouting process and having a good process. I was curious about your thoughts. Well, you know, all drafts in, in all sports to a certain extent are a crapshoot. But as you said, you, you can mitigate uh, how many times you miss by, you know, doing your homework. You one of the most important things that scouts do is background with individual players, you know, talking to that player's uh, teachers in school, talking to the parents to get a sense of his upbringing, you know, what, what are the, the family's values, uh, talking to the coaches, even talking to the, the background support staff, like the equipment managers and the therapists and, you know, do they treat people on staff with respect, um, you know, that's that's the sort of background digging and the background knowledge that can really 
separate if you've got two players on your board who are your scouting staff is roughly equivalent in terms of their evaluations of the players on ice performance uh, in terms of the skill levels, that sort of thing. You know, these are the little sorts of things that you look for and that you try to accumulate in, in, as far as knowledge and background knowledge. Um, and that gives you a better sense of, you know, who the player is, who he might become five years down the line when he's ready to really impact your team. Uh, is he going to be a leader in your room? Uh, is he, you know, is he going to bring other aspects to the room and to the organization? Um, so those, you know, those are little things that you can do to make it less of a crapshoot. Um, but also you, you know, you tick off the, the tangible things uh, you know, I mentioned, you know, skating in today's game is number one. Hockey sense for me has always been right there with skating is number two. I mean, there's plenty of guys who can skate and have no hockey sense and it's useless. So you're, you're just buzzing around the ice with no clue what you're doing. Um, you know, then you try to get into the measuring the, the heart and the character and the determination that a player has. But one thing that I always uh, try to impart again to our scouts, and, and then I think I, I learned through Nashville is, you know, you get into the later rounds. When I was with Nashville, there was more than seven rounds in the draft. I mean, back in the day, there used to be 10 rounds, 12 rounds. Um, right. Nine, you know, even, it was nine rounds until the, yeah. the CBA in 2005. Right. But I think the teams that do better at drafting pay more attention in the later rounds. And one thing that we always stressed at Nashville and that I've always stressed to our scouts if he's not an A or a B ranked player on your list, meaning he's not a guy you think is going to go in the first round or a guy who's going to go in the top three rounds, try to identify one or two, you know, major traits that he already possesses that would allow him to compete and excel at the highest level. Um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he's uh, average sized with slightly above average skills but he's an exceptionally physical player who, you know, routinely um, disrupts the, the, the flow of the other team and doesn't allow them to break out. Uh, persistent forecheck is always a pain in the ass to play against. Um, you know, there's, there's so many little things that players can do to impact games that if he's just a, a guy who's, you know, an average skills, uh, average size type guy, What's going to make him successful as a third and fourth line contributor on your team down the road? So you have to try and pick out at least one. I mean, you know, your A-ranked prospects, they have five, you know, five different tools that they can rely on uh, and that they can use to impact the game and use to impact the game in different zones. But, you know, if it's, uh, if it's a defenseman and he's a big physical beast and he's a shutdown guy, um, he's able to tie men up legally in front without taking foolish penalties. Um, you know, there's just little things that you're looking for in guys that you're drafting from rounds four through seven. There's reasons why they're not ranked as top guys who are going to go in the first 50 picks, but pick out one or two character traits that they have or physical traits that they have that you think, okay, you know, this guy's not developed yet. He's raw. Um, you know, there's parts of his game that aren't, you know, pro caliber. But he's got this one aspect to his game that, you know, he can build around that and he can, you know, help our organization in at least one way. And, you know, that's a guy you take a you take a late round gamble on. Great. 
Well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about the the big event that didn't happen, and that is the uh, the World Junior Championship and Edmonton <clears throat> and Red Deer. Very disappointing in, in how it all went down. Just curious, Kyle, because I know you're connected. I, I you're never lacking for an opinion uh, on on something. So uh, I just want to hear it from you. What what happened in in your view, uh, and uh, why didn't it, it it go go through? And maybe what could have could have been done differently to to salvage that event and give those players an opportunity? Well, I, I don't place too much blame on the organizers at all. I think it was mostly a timing issue. Um, it, all of the teams that arrived from Europe and the United States arrived by the 15th of December. And really in North America, we hadn't had the huge Omicron surge at that point. Um, numbers were fairly stable. Uh, you know, the, the the rate of vaccination was high. So, you know, it, it looked like we would be able to get through a tournament like that. And then shortly after all the teams had already arrived, things exploded. So I think, you know, timing was bad. I don't blame the organizers of the event for that. Uh, I don't blame the IIHF or Hockey Canada. I think the only thing that they could have done, if you could have foreseen this, uh, the Omicron, the big Omicron surge, if you could have foreseen it three months in advance, you would have said, okay, we're going to do what we did last year. We're going to have a complete bubble where, you know, you're just going to have team, you're going to block out entire hotels. The organizers would take up an entire hotel. Teams would be in that hotel. Uh, You know, you'd, you'd need four or five different hotels to house all the teams and the sports staff, but lock down those hotels, only get them on a bus from the hotel to the rink, And, you know, it would have to be a complete bubble situation. It would have to be the same bubble situation that they did last year to get the tournament in or that the NHL did, excuse me, in the spring of spring and summer of uh, 2020 to get the playoffs in and get a, a true Stanley Cup awarded. But when you have a huge surge like that after event after the event has already started, you know, it's, it's tough to put that genie back in the bottle. Um, if, if you had foreseen three or four months in advance back in August and September, well, we think there's going to be a new variant that comes about and we think it's going to be much more contagious and we think it could really impact the whole event. You know, uh, unless you foresee that, I, I don't know what else they could have done. I mean, I think the only situation that would have worked would have been a complete bubble. So, you know, failing, uh, having the foresight to understand that a new variant was going to come out that was going to be much more contagious. I don't know. I don't know what else they could have done. I think they, 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 everybody made their best efforts and it just, it just wasn't enough. One critique I've heard uh, coming from at least one of the coaches was the changing, the shifting protocols and, and standard made it difficult, you know, and I think there's, there's certainly something to that, you know, it may be if they had figured out how they were going to, to, to respond or recognize that just the nature by nature of, of, the symptoms, how some, you know, guys that are, you know, testing the dangers of testing um, healthy or asymptomatic people and getting positive results, what kind of impact that would have, especially with the, with the contact they were coming in with, because apparently like they were, the teams were raising concerns. Hey, we're being exposed to all of these people and there's nothing we can do about it, you know, and it's just, it's, it's unfortunate. And, you know, again, my, my purpose is not to point the finger. It's just, it's genuinely 
you, you look at the O2 birth year in particular, they met, this was their last opportunity to play in the world juniors and they missed the world under 18 uh, when the COVID pandemic broke out in 2020. So it's just been a tough couple of years for those guys. It is. Uh, there's no two ways around it. I mean, uh, you feel for them. Um, you wish it hadn't happened at all. And certainly to that specific age group, it, uh, it was worse for them than any other. But again, and that's that's a legitimate gripe that uh, the protocols were, were were shifting and changing. And you know, I, maybe it would have made a difference if they had said before the tournament started, okay, you know, we're talking about healthy seventeen to twenty year olds here who've all been vaccinated, at least you know ninety nine percent of them anyway. And if uh, if one of them or a couple of them on a team test positive throughout the course of the event. You, you know, you place them into an isolation situ- situation, um, but the, the isolation doesn't last 10 days or two weeks. It's, it's a five-day isolation. And if they've tested negative uh, for two straight days during, during that isolation period, then, you know, they can come back in and play in the tournament. I mean, it is a tournament that lasts for 11 days. So, you know, you might, you might miss a couple of players for a couple of games, but, you know, the tournament could still go on and you could still have a legitimate champion at the end. Yeah. Well, having said that, we did get a couple games in. So uh, j- yeah. just you know, guys at the top of the 2022 draft class are interesting that they're they were all there. I mean, those guys were there. So just 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 initial impressions on their season and respective seasons so far to date and what you saw from them in, in, in an admittedly small sample size. Sure. I think the one player who had for years been considered um, a real um, threat to Shane Wright's status as the top overall player was uh, Brad Lambert in in Finland. Um, He had gotten off to a terrible, terrible start over in Finland this year. He was not playing well in the, in the Finnish Liga, which is their top, you know, men's league played on the same team as uh, Joachim Kemmel and Kemmel was out playing him badly. Um, he was playing very much an individualistic game and not involving his teammates as well as he needed to. And nobody helped themselves more in a very brief, you know, two games, I guess it was three games. If you count the, uh, the pre-tournament game, nobody helped themselves more than Brad Lambert. He really, was able to rehab his value uh, as a draft pick. He had he had fallen out of our top ten in Redline Report, and I think was down about eleven or twelve. Um, but likely, just from those few games uh, in Edmonton, uh, he's going to be pushing himself back up into the top five here because he was extremely creative with the puck and did involve his teammates. Uh, made a lot of very imaginative, you know, passes. Um, so I, I think nobody helped themselves in that brief period of time more than than Brad Lambert, who had had been earlier thought of as a you know a top three guy and it, and it slipped, had fallen in the first half of the season. Other guys didn't get as didn't have as big a role for their team, like uh, Danila Yurov with the Russians. Um, you know, I I think of him as a top five, top six type player. Um, he, he had some flashes, he had some brief flashes, uh, but didn't have as big a role as a guy like Lambert had for his team. Uh, Shane Wright, um, by his standards has been 
okay, you know, pretty good in Kingston, but not, you know, not what we expected probably heading into the season. Um, and again, he was kind of uh, overshadowed by Connor Bedard, Connor Bedard who was just, yeah. you know, so otherworldly. Um, but Shane Wright did some really good things. He had, he did some really, uh, you know, some of the little small aspects of his game that he's worked on and improved. Um, you know, those, those sorts of things sh- shine through. I thought, um, you know, Slovakia had the most high end type prospects coming into the tournament who were draft eligible. And I think uh, Yuri Slavkovsky, the, the huge 6'4", 220 pound winger, uh, you know, they had trouble scoring. Um, I think in their first two games, they got shut out three, nothing and, and lost three, two to the U S. So they only scored two goals in two games, but Slavkovsky was, uh, was doing some nice things. He was, uh, showing that he could get his shot off with, with, uh, defensemen draped over his back. He didn't need much time or space to get dangerous shots away from the slot area. Um, he used his size to be a bit more physical than I've seen him in the past. So Slavkovsky did some good things. Um, Simon Nemec, the, the defenseman, I thought, you know, was a, a take charge kind of guy on the back end for this for the Slovaks early on in the tournament. Um, and then you have on the other end of the spectrum, I feel very badly for David Juracek, the big Czech defenseman who, you know, we had as a as top defenseman on the board um, going into the tournament and. Very early on, he got a knee injury. I understand he's going to have surgery now this week and is likely out for the rest of the season. So as brief as the tournament was, it wasn't brief enough for, for poor David Juracek because his, his season is now over. So, you know, those are, those are you know, some of the highlights from the top end guys, I would say. Um, you know, I think um, Slavkovsky, Nemec, um Lambert, uh, Joachim Kemmel, he didn't have much impact uh, for Finland. Um, I, it's it's not a tournament that you're going to downgrade a 17 year old for for not lighting it up. So you know he's he's not a guy who who damaged to you know he and Yurov are, are you know potential top five players in the draft. Neither one of them got to do too much in a in a severely shortened window, uh, but it's it's not a concern. New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast will return after this message. Catch the Sacred Heart University Pioneers on the ice this season. The Pioneers Division I men and women's hockey programs will not disappoint. Season ticket packages and individual tickets are on sale now at sacredheartpioneers.com. And opening in 2023, Sacred Heart University's Martiri Family Arena, a brand new 122,000 square foot premier skating facility in Fairfield, Connecticut. Learn more at sacredheartpioneers.com. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Do you want to skate fast? 
For 50 years, Laura Stam instructors have taught youth players to pros how to skate correctly, powerfully, and fast. Players who attend Laura Stam power skating programs learn how to skate fast by learning how to execute every maneuver in hockey. They become powerful, stable, efficient, and explosively fast skaters. If you can't wait for a clinic, join our subscription skills video service and we'll show you the skills taught at our clinics in an easy-to-use video format with training plans to guide your training. Register or subscribe now at laurastam.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-S-T-A-M-M dot com. You can learn to skate fast. So just the 2022 class uh, in general, what are your, I mean, it's, you know, six months in or so. So you're starting to really solidify those, those opinions of, of the class itself. How, what does it look like, and especially compared to more recent seasons? Compared to last year, I like the top end a bit more. Uh, I, you know, I, I would say Shane Wright would have been, the number one pick uh, in last year's draft, if he had been available last year. Um, so, you know, him and, and Ivan Marashnichenko, the uh, the Russian uh, winger, I think he's going to wind up being the uh, probably the best pure goal scorer out of this year's draft. And um, I would say I would probably have had Marashnichenko uh, as high as anybody in last year's draft. Obviously, Owen Power, um, you know, looked great for Canada in a brief stint there, had a hat trick. Um, you know, he's going to be representing Canada at the Worlds again probably this year. Um, but I would say it's a, it's a bit deeper crop when I look at the top 10 from last year as opposed to the top 10 from this year. We haven't even touched upon, you know, a couple of guys out in Winnipeg like uh, Matthew Savoie and Connor Geeky who, uh, who were not part of Team Canada. Uh, but when you add them into guys like Kemmel and Lambert and Slavkovsky and Wright and Mirashnichenko, you're off. You know, I think it's a really deep forward crop, not not necessarily so much top end defensemen. Uh, you know, there's no Owen Power in this year's draft as far as the defensemen are concerned. But I think if you look at the top 10, you know, there's some really good diversity there. There's some some creative centers like a Logan Cooley and, a, and Shane Wright. There's um, there's size on the wings. There's goal scoring on the wings. Um, it's it's a really good group of forwards at the top end. Oh, I like that. Now you you brought up a name I definitely want to get into, and I'm <clears throat> I'm, I'm I'm interested in the national team development program in, in general. And, and you know you've you've seen a lot of those teams. You've been in there on the ground floor since the the program began. So you mentioned Logan Cooley. Uh, I, you know I've had a chance to see him and. You know, just really, I talk about, you know, it's funny, I, I saw him at the at the, the fall classic for the USHL. He didn't have any points. But he was the best player on the ice in, in the games I saw because of what he was doing away from the puck. So what are your thoughts on on Logan Cooley? And then I want to kind of peel back the onion a bit on, on some of the other guys on that national team. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, we, we were talking earlier uh, about the premium I put on Hockey Sense, and Logan Cooley has that in spades. I mean, as you said, even if Logan Cooley is not putting two or three points a game on the board, he still does other things very intelligently to impact the game. He's very aware of his defensive responsibilities. He plays a very mature, responsible game. Uh, he sees the whole ice very well and understands developing plays, gets to places on the ice that the puck is going to be 
you know, two seconds down the road as opposed to, to going to where the puck is now. And that's, that's just such a good sign of, uh, of his hockey sense. So, you know, Cooley is going to be um, a, a number one center, very likely in the NHL. If, if not number one, then, you know, one of the top second line centers in the NHL. Um, he's just a, a really smart, intelligent, uh, mature two-way game uh, with some really high-end skills built in as well. Yeah, I love that. Now, he's got some pretty good teammates. I th- I think it's a it's a pretty decent uh group coming out of the national team and uh, you know, you look at, you know, whether you're talking Nazer, you know, whether we're talking uh Gautier, Snuggerud, I mean, there just there seems like there's you were talking about the draft class itself at the top end having a lot of good forwards. It seems like the strength of the, you know, no question, not it seems, no question the strength of this USA na- national team is in the forwards whether it's Isaac Howard and, you know, the the list goes on. Uh, absolutely. It's a it's a strong strong crop from the US national team program this year. I thought last year's crop was quite weak. Uh, one of the one of the poorer crops coming out of the NTDP, uh, but this year's crop is very strong. I could see as many as seven players uh, off the NTDP going in the first round this year, and I would say six of them are forwards. Um, you know, you you touched upon Cooley, and you mentioned briefly, um, you know, Frankie Nazar. Um, yeah, but there's other guys like Isaac Howard, who's a terrifically skilled, uh, terrific skater, probably the best yeah. skater of pure skater of the bunch. Um, so his his speed and his wheels combined with his uh, his instincts around the offensive zone are going to make him. You know, teams are teams are going to be falling all over themselves trying to trying to figure out how they're how high they're going to have to get up to get their hands on some of these guys, and 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 certainly Howard is one of them. Cutter Gautier other than Howard, most of them have really good size too. If you look at, um, I really like Jimmy Snuggerud and, and Cutter Gauthier and they're probably, you know, back third of the first round type guys, but they're, they're already six, two, six, three and approaching 200 pounds. And, uh, they play a physical style. Uh, they kind of remind me of, uh, Tyler Boucher from, from last year's team who went 10th overall to Ottawa. Um, you know, they have the size and they have the physicality and they have those, you know, those prototypical pro attributes. Um, they've had heavy shots off the wing. Um, you know, Nazar is, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of an enigma in that he could be the, as highly skilled as, as Logan Cooley, but he's not as mature in his game. He's much more raw. He makes a lot of mistakes. Right. Uh, he's, you know, at the level he's playing at now, he's got the the physical attributes and the skills to wipe out the mistakes he makes. But you've got to clean some of that up before you uh, before you're going to be yeah. a, a contributing pro because coaches coaches at the NHL level don't like some of the types of mistakes that he'll make. Um, he so, giveth you know, and he taketh away, right? So you know he'll make some incredible plays, but he'll also turn that puck over, and that's exact. I think that's what you're talking about, right? But one thing I like. Oh, go ahead. He's high reward. But he's he high comes reward. With of high risk too. So. Yeah, no doubt. One of the things I like about him though is that when he does turn the puck over, he he does make an effort to go and get it. And there he are some. Get the back. Yeah, yeah, there are some players where they'll turn the puck over and then they're just kind of loafing back and or don't really make that concerted effort. And I think, you know, it will be certainly. You talked about those 
those uh, draft discussions you had in, in, in Nashville and, you know, the various, you know, like, like I'm sure this, this will be a point of contention when, when he comes up, but uh, I, I like him. I, I, I'm with you. Um, one one um, product of the national team that was a late 03 birthday and, and, and is no longer on the team and is now in college, but he's an area guy to new England. Some were very interested in getting your thoughts on is Jack Hughes at Northeastern. Uh, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't part of the world junior uh, mix, but you will probably certainly be there next year. What are your thoughts on, on him and, and how he looks this year? Well, again, uh, it's hard for true fresh. There's, there's very few players anymore that I would consider true freshmen. I mean, they, in the States, the trend over the course of the last 15 years has been for college teams and, and recruiters to recruit these kids, uh, you know, promise them the world. And then, well, you know, when they're, when it's time for them to graduate high school, they're asked to go out and play junior for a year or two. So there, you know, most of these so-called freshmen in the, in college these days are 20 years old. I even see 21 year old freshmen. And that's not a freshman to me. Um, but this kid is a true freshman who just turned 18. When you are a true freshman, you kind of have to earn your way up the ladder. Uh, you have to start at the lower rungs and earn your ice time, um, earn power play time if you're a forward. Um, so I think, you know, he didn't have as, as big a role at the start of the season as you would expect typically out of, a, you know, a first round talent but he's worked his way into the lineup and uh, you know, he started to show why everybody has uh, you know, high hopes for him down the road. He's a skilled kid. As you mentioned, he played a couple of years with the NTDP um, was well coached. Um, you know, he's got a real sense of discipline to his game. The offense is going to come. He's got offense in his game. He's uh, as a center, I, I, he's kind of more for me, a guy who, not so much a traditional playmaking center. He's looking for his own shot too. Uh, he's aggressive. Um, you know, he's going to be in there mucking and grinding down in the corners. Um, so, you know, he's a good, well-rounded player. Um, and I think he will be a, a, you know, a cornerstone foundation type player for Northeastern in his second year when he's, when he's a sophomore. Uh, but, you know, that's not going to hold him back from being a first round pick this year in the NHL. Nice. Nice. seems like new England's a pretty good, pretty good area this year between Hughes and the, you know, the prep guys, there's some pretty good depth and may, may not be a lot of a proliferation of, of upper end, you know, first, second round. We talked about Hughes being at the top of that and there may not be a lot of first, second, third rounder types, but I, I see this draft in this area having, you know, some from rounds four to seven, some pretty good options to choose from. Yeah, more legitimately draftable players this year in New England than there have than there has been for probably the last half dozen years. Um, you know, a lot of the, the really legitimately draftable players in New England in the past six seven years have been going out and playing in the USHL, uh, leaving the area, not staying and playing prep school. But there's a good mix and a good crop uh, coming from the from the prep schools this year. Um, and when you throw in, you know, a guy like Hughes in college, uh, it's probably a year when you could see as many as uh, 8, 10, 12 guys from New England actually being drafted this year. Well, I'm looking forward to when we can we have you on again closer to the draft. We can talk about maybe some of those those prep guys in more detail. We'll let the season go. Unfortunately, they've had some cancellations and some postponements. It's kind of thrown a little <clears throat> bit of a a monkey wrench in the, in the season, but you know, we're all gonna, we're all gonna hold out that, uh, you know, the, 
if we can figure this out and get these guys playing and continue to watch them. Uh, you know, as we as we start to wind down, Kyle, uh, sleepers, favorites, guys that have kind of risen for you because, you, as you said, you've got a deep list. You don't have to don't have to reveal all the secrets by, by any means. But who are some of the guys that 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 the the people that are into the draft and maybe some of these people that enjoy kind of doing their own scouting and going out and looking and, and preparing themselves to, for what's going to happen in in July? Who are some of the guys that really stood out to you? Well, there's a, a huge Russian that nobody has even mentioned. Um, you know, I, I'm really kind of stunned by it. He's uh, a six foot seven, 235 pound winger, Kirill Dolzhenkov. And, uh, you know, doesn't seem like any of these other so-called scouting services have even, are even aware of him. Uh, but he's going to attract a lot of attention among NHL scouts, um, A, because of the size, B, because to go along with that size, he's got some really soft hands and good vision, very good creativity. Um, and, you know, it's you're, you're going to have to make a decision on him. Is he just dominating at this level because he's so physically dominant and so much bigger and stronger than the other players he's playing against in his age group? Or, you know, what what is it going to translate to at the next level? Uh, he does have to get a little bit more motivated to push a little bit harder, more consistently. Uh, but a guy with that kind of size and those types of hands and, and vision and instincts around the offensive zone, I'm, I'm stunned that nobody's even picked up on him at all. Uh, you know, I think he's going to be a, a clear first rounder. The question is how high. Um, one other player that I really liked in looking at some tournaments in Europe last month uh, is a Swedish defenseman named Callie Odelius. Uh, he's a player who, you know, we were kind of aware of my Swedish scout had kind of, you know, targeted him at the start of the year as, um, you know, a mid-level Swedish uh, player as far as their draft list is concerned this year. But I think he's made really good strides in the first couple of uh, months of the season. And, you know, just a very mobile, uh, strong puck mover, uh, capable of running a power play. So I think Kelly Odelius from Sweden is a guy that we're going to be looking at. And one guy that I loved in last year's draft, an 03 birth date uh, from Belarus, uh, Ivan Zhigalov, I thought was one of the top four or five goaltenders available in last year's draft, but nobody got to see him, um, you know, because nobody was traveling to Europe. There weren't any international tournaments until April last year when the World Under-18s came to Texas. And even then, he only played one and a half games. So you didn't really get to see a lot of him. Well, he's come over to Sherbrooke in the Quebec League this year and played really well. And again, I, I'm I'm often at odds with NHL teams in that they're you know they're not taking at least a seventh round flyer on a guy like Zhigalov last year because they didn't see him enough. Well, you saw enough that you knew that he was he was a legitimate draft pick. This is a guy who should have been drafted last year. I would have taken him as high as the third round last year. And he's playing very well in the Quebec League uh, for Sherbrooke this year. He's a real sleeper for me. Uh, we, you know, we've got him as a third round guy in the in the seventies right now. Um, you know, if he continues on the way he has, he could even climb higher than that. Well, one one guy you did make the call on, and that uh, Calgary listened was uh, Arseny Sergeyev. So nice, nice job there. <laughs> <laughs> uh last last thing and we're gonna we're gonna wrap it's been great having you um but but kyle just real quick 2023 if you had to make the call today connor bedard or matvey michkov who are you drafting still a slight edge for bedard 
um, but it's razor thin. It's a razor thin edge. I mean, Mishkoff, both of those two players would have been the first overall pick in any draft the last five years. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's Ovechkin and Malkin kind of, you know, similar, similar kind of thing. Exactly. And, you know, I, I would say that the two of them are the two best prospects to come along since Connor McDavid. Awesome. Kyle, thank you so much for your time. I think this has been a great conversation. We covered a lot of topics, you know, from from the nuts and bolts of scouting, which you have, you know, just a tremendous amount of experience and insight on, but also covered some players. And we're going to get you back on as we get closer to the draft and, and, and drill down into some of these guys. But again, thank you so much. It's It's been great and and wish you the best here as you continue the, uh, the scouting drive for Redline in, in 2022. Well, happy New Year, Kirk, and happy to do it for you. And, um, you know, hope that the, the prep schools get back rolling again at some point here so you can get out into the rinks and watch some more yeah, hockey. There you go. And uh, we'll hope, hope to see you around and as, as maybe in those uh, prep tournaments toward the yeah. spring gets on. So, anyway, thanks, Kyle. Great having you. Thanks, Kirk. Well, that was our discussion with Kyle Woodleaf of the Redline Report. If you're interested in finding out more about Redline Report, redlinereport.com. Otherwise, he will be around, and I'm sure we'll get him on at another later date as we get closer to the 2022 draft in July. Uh, But until then, uh, that's all we have for RinkWise. We will see you at the rink. Thanks for listening to New England Hockey Journal's RinkWise podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Follow us on Twitter at NE Hockey Journal, on Instagram and Facebook at New England Hockey Journal, and subscribe to New England Hockey Journal online at hockeyjournal.com. New England Hockey Journal's Rinkwise is a Siemens Media Podcast.